0: My head is full of wanderlust, my quiver's full of hope I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope Aspen's gold on snowcalf peaks, the elk call me away I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day I've got
1: Nimrod rider.
2: welcome to the track quest podcast i'm your host james Orr, and joining me today as always bob the bowhunter borland what's going on bob oh not much man how you doing man uh super good we just got off the line with your brother from a different mother (laughs) doug borland
1: yeah what a stud and he is not related that i know of but
2: uh and that was really interesting, though, because he's—you guys aren't related that you know of—but your father and your brother are Doug Borland.
1: Yep, yep. Go and ahead, then my down grandpa, down. my dad's dad, was a Doug Borland. Doug and Borland. Then Doug, that we just interviewed, his brother's
2: name is Robert. Robert. <laughs> and he says to top it off, his mother, his mother's maiden name. Is ore and I we talked about where his uh his uh the ores come from and it's it doesn't seem to be the same correlation that I know of as my family, but pretty uh, strange uh, uh, coincidence there.
1: Yeah, pre- pretty strange. What a good dude though, man. What a stud.
2: So Doug Borland our brother from a different mother. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, Doug is uh uh been around the game for would you say 50 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and... yeah. I mean he started the game. I mean uh pretty much. <laughs> he's he's uh he's been bow hunting a long time, sheep, goats, Siberian yeah. snow sheep and moose and grizzly bear and And, uh, what's that story told us in, um, British Columbia. I mean, he's hunted all over and super, super into the wilderness excursions and backpack hunting. And so we tried to get into that, the high country stuff tonight with him.
2: Yeah. So, uh, we, we get into the high country stuff with him. He's, he's originally from Montana. He was uh, born and raised there. Uh, he currently, uh, lives in Sitka, Alaska, He's been in Alaska for a long time. Um, we, we conducted this interview. Uh, he's at his vacation home in Hawaii, where he goes over there to get away from the weather. And it sounds like he does some access deer hunting and boar hunting and bone fishing. And um, so I imagine down the road, we're going to get into a lot of different topics with this guy. And it's a, it's a really awesome uh, stories that are told tonight. Um, he is an active, uh, guy in PBS, uh, professional bow hunter society. He's active in, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. And, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot to this guy that we will dig into for you guys in future episodes. So look forward to, uh, more from Doug Borland and I hope you guys enjoy this one. Well, today joining us is Doug Borland, uh, Doug, you were uh, brought up in the, a couple podcasts back when we had uh, Dick Robertson on and we talked about some of your guys' adventures and we're uh, delighted to have you on the line today. Uh, you're joining us, I believe, uh, from your second residence in Hawaii.
0: Yeah, that is correct and I'm glad to be here, guys.
2: Awesome. Well, why don't you go ahead and give us a little rundown on, you know, how You know, how long you've been into traditional archery, how you got your start, um, some of the stuff you're involved in.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I'm kind of uh, ashamed to say it's been over 50 years that I've been tugging stick bows around. So so I grew up in Montana, and uh, when I was growing up in Montana, there were really no other uh, archers or bow hunters, period, around. I got my first bow from dad who brought two fiberglass bows back from Portland um, when he was out there visiting Oregon family. And so my brother and I each got a fiberglass recurve. I forget um, the manufacturer at the time, but we were still grade schoolers. And so we flung a few arrows around at at gophers and then got interested in big game hunting, I guess, about the time we were high school Age and uh, we were gun hunters. We're, my dad was a hunter, and so one of the things in Montana at that time was uh, the game was very prevalent, and it was easy to go out and see oh 30, 40 mule deer a day or get into elk every day if you wanted to. And so um, we were pretty successful early as um, rifle hunters, so that sort of led us into um, maybe a little better challenge and a different way to do it and so my brother uh, and I both got into it in high school through herders catalogs Uh, not knowing a thing about anything we just ordered um, recurve bows out of herders catalog and some arrows and started out the hard way and and kind of uh, we're in a learning curve for a long time but so Uh, two season hunter through high school and and uh, then about the time i got into college i started focusing exclusively on uh, hunting with the bow started making my own arrows and uh, my first uh, upgrade from the old herders equipment was oh probably around 70 or 71 i got a wing thunderbird recurve which was really a Cadillac bow at that time and started hunting with that and then um, got out of college and went to Alaska which was a real mecca for a hunter and that sort of um, by that time I was exclusively hunting with a bow and and uh, still using um, the recurves.
2: Awesome so you've you stuck true to the uh, traditional equipment through your uh, archery career?
0: Yeah, 100%. I was never really tempted by um, the mechanization of of, um, the equipment. I did. When I was in college, a friend and I had um, a connection at an archery shop and they were bringing in some compounds and as my friend Jay Massey used to call them, um, and I still do, uh compound arrow flinging devices. <laughs> and we borrowed one and took it into the field and thought, you know, let's see what the heck they're about. And we shot them that day and uh, thought they were heavy and noisy. And our um, conclusion was this is never going to happen. No, nobody would would want to carry one of these around so we took it back to the archery shop and the rest is history
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. so, so
0: I, I, other than that it was always hunting with with stick bow and and uh, you know traditional equipment
2: okay and so i know i know you're not in montana no more why don't you give us you know a rundown on on you know where you reside now and and how that came to be
0: Sure, I'm an I'm an Alaskan, and I always wanted to go to Alaska. Uh, not the least uh, incentive being the, the hunting and fishing available there. Uh, my dad was there during the war, so he had brought home a trunk full of Alaskan treasures, beaver hats, and traps that he used when he was there. And so I always wanted to go there. When I got an opportunity out of out of college, I went up and. Not knowing anything about Alaska, I went down to the fish and game department when I was first there and started asking around if anybody hunted with a bow or anybody could give a rookie uh, any uh, information on where I might go and how to do it in Alaska. And I was sent down the hall to a gentleman by the name of Jay Massey, who was the... um, information and education director worked for the fishing game had a put out their newsletter their magazine had a tv show um and so i met him and by coincidence he was a bow hunter and archer and we became fast friends i was with him saturday night after the day week that i went in to see him and we were talking archery and bow hunting and he was getting into bow making and so we became fast friends, and he became my hunting buddy and number one bow hunting companion in Alaska. and I lived in Anchorage, where he lived outside of Anchorage and Eagle River um, for probably twenty some years. and then I reside now in Sitka in southeast Alaska, down on the Panhandle. so been in Alaska really my whole, my whole career since college.
2: Oh, that's very cool. I currently uh, just uh, retain, uh, obtained a copy of Jay Massey's book, The Boyer's Craft, and I'm just starting to uh, dig into that because I'm planning on uh, building my first self-bow here next month.
0: Well, great. He was really into that. He, I'm not a bowyer, and I built a couple bows w- and with Jay's help, and, and I still have a stave that I'm hoping—I've got an old Earl Ulrich— use uh, dave that's probably 50 years old at least um, that i plan on doing a self-bow out of but uh, typically i've not built bows that i've hunted with dick robertson equipment lately and for a long long time he's another good friend and and probably who i think is the best bowyer out there and so uh, i'm more into the hunting side of it than am the bow building side of it probably because my business has kept me pretty hooked up and I haven't had a lot of time but if I do have time I get in the woods
2: <laughs> yeah right on so tell us uh I, I know you've hunted all species but what is your uh what's your favorite hunt what's what do you, what do you like uh what do you like best when it comes well, to bow hunting?
0: I like any kind of uh wilderness hunting I guess I I really enjoy expedition backpacking and Jay and I used to to do a lot of river floating, so uh, that's another one that was high up. Back in the early years, we had the opportunity to do some what we would call first descents of Alaskan rivers that really hadn't been floated or hadn't been float-hunted before. Uh, We did some airdrops where we would take our camps and fly in a small airplane and toss the camp out on the top of a mountain somewhere, and then we'd land at the closest place that we could backpack into our rafting gear pack it off the mountain to the closest river which used to be a lot of times a little creek that wasn't floatable but somewhere (laughs) downstream from there we could float so we we did some pioneering of some rivers and that was always exciting and really a great way to go and never see another hunter and be out there on your own, you know, pure wilderness with, with um, nothing but your own two legs, maybe a raft to get downstream. So that would be one highlight. And But high country hunting is probably closest to my heart. And I've done a lot of uh, goat hunting in Alaska, Rocky Mountain goats, and I've done a lot of, of uh, sheep hunting. And both of those involved getting from the low country to the high um the terrain is magnificent the um uh, animals are magnificent and so that's something i've concentrated on and jay got me turned on to sheep hunting when i met him he had probably sheep hunted five or six times and not taken a ram and he was really into that challenge and so um, he said, let's go sheep hunting. And I said, hey, I'm in. Uh, he had some <clears throat> contacts in Fairbanks um, because he was with Fish and Game. And the Fish and Game, they were just getting into doing sheep surveys at the time. And so Jay called up uh, the sheep biologists and he says, hey, where where could we go with our stick bows uh the two criteria we need is broken terrain and stockable terrain because a lot of alaska sheep live in kind of rounded kind of um lower and less rugged mountains which don't they give a rifle hunter an opportunity but they don't give a bow hunter much of an opportunity to make stock and he said the second thing we want is something so remote that we won't see any other hunters and and uh, we'll have it to ourselves. So we got a couple of marks on a map, and, and uh, off we went. This, I think, was probably 1976 or 7. Um, and we went, started doing these annual sheep hunts, and we went two or three times unsuccessfully, and then we found an area that I've been going to since then, um, probably about 78, that was just perfect for uh, a bow hunter. And um, huntable numbers of rams, uh, broken country, uh, st- hard to get to, two or three days of backpacking to get into. And we started doing annual trips into there. And Jay and I both took rams. Um, since then, I've gotten a couple more out of that area. And I'm starting to turn some of those areas over to younger hunters um, just i've been very protective of where to go and how to do it but um, i'm starting to to take some other people in there that i know will do it right and i'm starting to turn over my areas to to people that uh, you know can appreciate it and use it in the future
2: Uh, tell us about some of the logistics on how you go about these hunts you know from from start to finish on what it takes to get in there. I know you mentioned a couple-day backpacking in and, and how this, you know, hunt lays out and, uh, you know, sure. maybe well, tell... Sure,
0: you bet. Well, first of all, it might be important to say that in Alaska, if you're a non-resident hunter, you can't, it's illegal to hunt sheep or goats without a guide. And so sheep hunting for a non-resident has become a very, very... High income, um, almost out of reach except for a, for a few people. Alaska residents can still get a sheep tag and uh, not. I don't even pay any money for the tag. I just pick one up and go. Um, so where we go, where I have been going lately, is the far north of uh, Alaska, the Brooks Range, and what is called Anwar. Then. Uh, Arctic Wildlife Refuge. It's far north and east. Uh, It's a wilderness area, um, no motorized vehicles. You can land a plane in there, but you have to have, um, there's rules. You can't um, fly below a certain level except when you land and take off. You're not supposed to use the plane to spot, but it gets abused quite a bit. But Uh, Anyway, we go into that ANWR country. Uh, We charter an airplane and land in the low country uh, on a sandbar on a river. And from there, our destination is some 20 to 25 miles cross-country, basically. So depending on how we feel and, and the weather, et cetera, it'll take us two or three days of backpacking to get into it. And I remember when Jay and I did it the first time, um, we had over 60 pounds each. This, in the old days, the ultralight packs and ultralight equipment wasn't really available. Um, there wasn't freeze-dried food available. And so we went in pretty heavy. uh, the year that we each got a ram, we packed out of there some well, when we when you get to your base camp, you're already 25 miles from the drop-off point. Then we would hunt and spike camp out of there, so you had another range of oh eight or 10 miles that you were hunting. And this is all mountainous, up and down country. So the year we both got rams, um, we came out, backpacked back to the to the pickup point, got uh, flown back to the village. Where we could get on a bigger plane to get back to Fairbanks, and we threw our packs on on the uh, scales, and Jay's was 128 and mine was 126, and that's almost all just pure meat coming out. So those were the days when I could do that, when I could throw <laughs> 100 pounds on my back and just go.
2: Wow, Jeez. for for 60 60 miles round trip, it, I mean that's that's pretty hardcore for sure
0: yeah it is pretty hardcore but you know the the key to it is number one be in good physical shape but number two is is don't push and and don't um have a schedule don't have to hurry you can't really be a weekend hunter and do those kind of hunts um we used to go in and and try not to have a schedule try to to uh, take way more time than we thought we needed so if you get weather conditions uh, you could just keg up and and also you learn to to deal with it whatever it is Um, you learn to use your equipment you learn to camp comfortably and stay dry you learn how to make a fire in any conditions and um those were things that were invaluable where, wherever you go. And to this day, I would feel comfortable dropped anywhere in the country. If I had a knife and a, and a compass and a, something to make a fire with, I think I could pretty much get out of anywhere. And the only way you can learn that is to go do it. And we learned, we learned it all the hard way. Those were good times.
2: That's awesome. Um, so How many of these uh, sheep have you been successful taking?
0: um, Well, I've taken three doll rams um, with the bow. First one with the winged thunderbird and the last two with longbows. I've been really hunting strictly longbows for probably the last 30 years. and uh, So the ratio of hunts to uh, success, I probably wouldn't brag about I've spent a lot of days on the mountain, and I think any sheep hunter would attest to that, unless you're, you've got a guide that's pre-scouting and pre-setting up everything for you. Sheep hunting is probably one of the most difficult uh, endeavors with a bow. And it's the same way for goats. Mountain goats are a wonderful, wonderful quarry to head, head up, usually in Alaska, from the ocean, from sea level and you hunt about, all oh, 3,000 to 5,000 feet, and it is some of the most rugged sea coastal country there is. And I have probably goat hunted at least two dozen times, um, and all of them these, you know, uh, let's say a week or more on the mountain. And I've taken, I don't know, five or six goats. So it's not like... Um, Oh, deer hunting in your backyard, and I do a lot of that too. But as far as getting meat, it's it's one of the uh, probably less successful as far as time in the field versus time of of preparing for
2: the freezer. so let's uh, let's back up and talk a little bit about equipment. You'd mentioned that uh, the equipment uh, that you started off originally uh, wasn't of the ultra lightweight stuff of now. Um, if you were going out now, what is, what is your pack and your gear look like? And, and what is, you, you mentioned, uh, that you're hunting with longbows Now, what is, what bow and arrow setups and broadheads, like give us a, a rundown of, uh, what your equipment looks like on one of these hunts, uh, presently.
0: Sure. I'm pretty basic and I'm, I'm a simplicity kind of guy and I, um, don't, have uh, I haven't changed probably my approach. I started out with wood arrows and bear razor heads, and now I shoot wood arrows and and Zwicky Eskimos. Single edge, um, long bow, stick and string. Dick Dick keeps making bows for me, so I change those once in a while because he likes to test his new designs. <laughs> but um, I I really um, am into a very simple approach. Um, if if your arrows shoot well out of your bow, um, don't change anything. Uh, heavy arrow, and I I I really feel like I'm almost a throwback. I'm making arrows the same way I was when I started out, and and um, there's no reason for for a lot of changes.
2: T- tell, us, the, tell us about the those arrows. Are you shooting firs or cedars or spruces? Yeah,
0: just, no, just cedars. I, I mm-hmm. just order cedar shafts and make them. Or uh, A lot of times I've been supporting, like when I go to PBS, I'll buy a dozen fancy arrows, and arrows are for shooting. So <laughs> I take them out and use them. So <laughs> I, I really, again, my approach is the hunt's the thing, uh, to mess around and experiment with with a lot of different arrows i did shoot micro flights for a while jay and i got into to the heavy micro flights when they first came out um just to look for a heavier arrow that would penetrate a moose better but uh, we found that it really wasn't uh, any kind of an advantage we could get heavier cedar and so that's what i've been been shooting is is um rose city cedar shafts or get them from one of the other manufacturers and make him up and go. Um, as far as the bow is concerned, um, I've been shooting Robertson um, equipment. He sent me a takedown recurve. I tried it. I found that I can't go back and forth between a, a recurve and a longbow very easily. I shoot purely instinctive. Uh, if I think about it at all, I've, I get a problem. In my setup, For recurve shooting is totally different. I shoot off my front foot when I'm shooting a long bow. I camp the bow a lot um, and I kind of lean into the shot. And with a recurve, it's more static and I tend to stand uh, more upright. Uh, The bow is more upright and I put more weight on the back foot or evenly distribute it. And I can shoot good with a recurve, but I can't go back and forth. I have to either do one or the other. And so I've really learned that it's just better to stick with with the one type of equipment. And it's funny, it's like riding a bike. I can pick up the bow, shoot two or three arrows, and feel good and go, even though I haven't shot for 60 days. um, I shoot a lot in the field. I really am always shooting arrows. So when I'm tramping around, every dirt plot, every mushroom, everything is a is a target, and I get my eye pretty fast and get back into it. But if I have to think about it, I'm a terrible target shot. Um, I'm a good shot in the field, good shot when there's game around. But if I have to stand there and say, geez, this is 42 yards away, what do I do now? I'm a terrible shot. Very the way to go.
2: Absolutely, for hunting, it's it's hard to beat. Um, so, how many arrows are you packing on a, on a trip like this? If you're shooting a lot, um, you know, I, and are you running a bow quiver on your bow, um, a cat quiver? I'll, what, I'll
0: do it either way. I like a back quiver for high country because there's no brush and no no worries about uh, transportation. But I shoot a lot. Of, I use a three arrow bow quiver, usually three broadheads and um, a blunt. And um, I'll take like on a sheep hunt where weight is an issue. I'll usually take um, six broadheads and maybe three blunts. But I can take the broadheads off and replace with a blunt if I bust up the arrows, which I do occasionally. I just shoot H T M rubber blunts. Been doing that for years. A lot of times I'll put a weighted um, um, 38 case with a maybe 22 bullet uh tamped into the uh, tip of it so i can add some weight to my blunt so i can knock down grouse easier and stuff but um typically um i use no more than a three arrow bow quiver if i'm using it and um i can tell a story where that was um almost not enough on a sheep hunt Uh, the the biggest ram that i took i had a three arrow bow quiver and i had five legal rams that i was um approaching and i ran out of cover and four of the rams went by me at about 60 yards um and i was just done i was i was not going to get any closer i was in the last little rock out copping pr- that i could um and the biggest ram i didn't even know was there and i hadn't seen it earlier And when it came by, it came by me at about 35 yards downhill and a pretty steep angle downhill. And I usually limit my shooting to 30 yards and under, and I'm very comfortable at 20 yards. But at 30 yards, it's just the extent of my range, and I wouldn't even typically take a 30-yard shot if conditions weren't perfect. Well, this was probably the last day on this hunt that I'd be able to to, to really hunt. I had to head out the next couple of days downhill to get back to the pickup point. And so I decided, well, it's, it's above timberline. I got plenty of light. Even if I make a bad hit, I can sight track this sheep forever. And it's about 35, 36 yards downhill. I'm just going to let her go. He doesn't see me. And so I took the, the first arrow and I shot a perfect line, dropped right under its chest and went between its legs. Now, this is severe downhill. <laughs> arrow ricocheted off the rocks and went on down underneath him. And the sheep took two jumps and looked downhill to see what that noise was. So now I thought, well, this this is better. I got a, took the second arrow out and raised my sight picture a little and shot the second arrow perfectly again on line with the chest and went cut hair on his back and went right over his back. That arrow went on down and rattled in the rocks below him, and he took two more jumps and looked down there to see what was making that noise. Now I got one arrow left. And I'm starting to think about it, which is not good. And But one thing I thought was, hey, he doesn't know I'm here. He's looking downhill. Why am I not getting closer? And there were four other rams 70 yards away that I would have to expose myself to to, to get closer to him, to Indian down another 10 or 15 yards is what I really needed. So I thought, well, what the heck? And I left my cover and I eased on down and the other four rams all spotted me and if they'd have gone he'd have gone but they just stood there and went what in the world is that and so I closed the distance from 35 yards to about 25 yards and then I took him perfectly and it got him but that was one of the times I was thinking man I need a few more arrows
1: <laughs> I bet uh, what what weight do you shoot on your longbow, Doug?
0: Well, I'm coming down. We used to always shoot 70-pound bows, and that's just a misconception, I think, because the older I get, I think I've cut an inch off my draw, or maybe two inches, and um, 10 to 20 pounds off my bows, depending what I'm hunting. I still like something close to 60 pounds for moose, uh, but everything else i'm hunting 54 um i've got one bow that dick made me that is 52 that i deer hunt with um so i think it's more important to to shoot a heavy grain arrow and be close and and uh, you can kill any big game animal in north america with a 58 pound bow no doubt about it
2: and when you say heavy arrow are you in that 600 to 700 grain area.
0: Yeah, I like to push 600. And that's that's enough um and so if you've got good arrows with 600 grains um good sharp broadhead, hey, sharpness is so important. If it doesn't shave, I don't go out with it. And uh, that can turn a marginal hit into a good hit. So, um again, pretty pretty basic just uh the hunt's the thing. If you can get close and make a good shot, and it's another thing, in the last 20 years, I have taken less and less shots at closer and closer range, and it's I very seldom um, will miss. I mean, it's just because um, I try to limit my shots to ones I know I can take.
2: And um, that's so on these expedition hunts, tell us a little bit about your pack and the food you're eating and uh, how you're preparing it, um, you know, as far as sure. clo- clothing and boots. and
0: Yeah, things have changed a lot, and I still am a firm believer in wool. There's nothing better than, than wool gear. It will not let you down in, in cold weather or wet and rainy weather, but wool gets heavy. And um, so some of the modern materials, especially for base layers, um, are, are good. The, the polypros and the, and the um, new uh, space-age materials can be very, very good. I um, don't really have a very big um, affinity for um, camo. I, don't, I have a few pieces of camo. But a lot of the, the new gear is built for the, for the catalog and the consumer, um, although people like Sitka Gear and QU, they make some good stuff, but I don't think you need to pay $300 for you know, a, a jacket to go hunting with. Um, simple wool, base layers, polypro underwear, or merino wool underwear is even better. Um, layer up. Go Now you can get such light gear for the same um, insulation that we used to have. I like down a lot, but you better know how to keep it um, dry. I understand there's some new waterproof down. I haven't tried it, but that would that would be important. But I still take a down sleeping bag. I just know how to keep it um, dry, and I know how to, to make sure that it doesn't get moisture in it. Um, all the gear, the tents, I, I'm using Big Agnes um, lightweight tents. Uh, usually for, for a solo trip, I will have a two-person tent, um, which I can get down around three and a half pounds, I think my, my Big Agnes tent is. Um, the reason I use a two-person is all of my gear can go inside. Between the, the fly and the tent itself, I can take everything inside and keep it dry. Um, as far as sleeping pads, they're they're very lightweight now. You can get Thermarest makes several varieties that are very lightweight and comfortable. Um, I try to use a, a, a lightweight shell for rain gear. Don't much believe in Gore Tex. I think it's overrated. Uh, you can ha- you can have two kinds of rain gear. You can have rain gear that works, and that's the rubberized, the kind that I use when I go out fishing and I know I'm going to get drenched. Or the second kind is what I would call water-resistant, which means in a major downpour, you're probably going to get wet. That's why you need wool or polypro uh, to to keep you warm anyway. I use my rain gear mostly as a windbreaker. Um, and if you have waterproof rain gear and you go, like I like to go in the field, um, you're going to get sweated up in it anyway. You're going to get wet inside. So that's a, that's always been a puzzle, but you can get pretty good quality, lightweight, uh, wind, uh, stopper, wind resistant and pretty waterproof rain gear now, um, but again, it isn't worth paying 250 bucks for a set because they all are going to get you wet anyway from sweat when you're when you're hiking. Um, food-wise, that's also changed a lot, and um, the new um, dehydrated, freeze-dried foods are excellent. Although I never go without something to give you. Um, go power i never go without peanut butter i never go without usually i mix peanut butter honey and um, butter in equal um one-third 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 and that's something that i'll take a, a big quantity of because you can there's a lot of go power in it i always take uh, cheese i always take salami Uh, The more fat you have when you're backpacking, the better off you're going to be because you're burning a ton of calories. And so you try to get, when I go through and look at my granola bars, I don't buy them. I buy them by calories per weight. And so there's a ton of suppliers out there. But you want the most calories in the lightest weight possible. Um, I do Mountain House or another... um, good brand freeze-dried they're getting better and better because you just have to cut down on weight but we always supplement them with um you know like oatmeal um enough regular food that you can get calories because you go on a two-week trip um you'll lose all lose 10 pounds and you'll you you do not want to lose energy the more you burn the harder it is and if you end up backpacking an animal out, that's when you need it the most. So uh, try not to scrimp on it uh, and always have um, some regular high-calorie, high-density um, fatty foods. And hope awesome. you can live off the land a little bit. Hope you <laughs> can get fish or, or grouse or, you know, we always have some fishing gear, and we're always trying to get some small game to supplement what we're doing out
2: there. And are you able to cook up a little bit of those sheep when you get one uh, on the mountain?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, if you get one early, that really makes the trip. Uh, The year Jay and I got two rams, he got his on the first day. And so that enabled us to, number one, eat sheep every day, and number two, cut down a little bit on what we had to pack out. (laughs) Yeah. You know the other thing is the backpacks they have now. My original backpacks, you know, those were five or six pound packs, and now you can get a decent pack um, for maybe it's about three pounds of uh, cookware. I'm I have titanium cookware. Um, you can get, you know, your stoves and your all of that. You can just um, cut ounces out. We cut our our. Um, Toothbrushes in half when we went. So with anything you can do to cut down on on um, poundage, right? And it's all important uh, at, in the end.
2: Uh, ounces, tarps, ounces make you know, pounds.
0: Yes, exactly. And you know we used to take visqueen with us to to make a shelter, and now they have it's expensive, but those silt harps are worth it because they they weigh ounces to give you waterproof protection. You know, my first my first goat hunt, um, I didn't have a tent. I had an army uh, mummy bag, down mummy bag. I had uh, a 12 by 10 piece of visqueen. And that's how we started out, because we didn't have the money for, for buying equipment. But you learn to make a dry camp because it only took a few times sleeping in a puddle. say hey i gotta figure this out and and learn how to do it right it's it's great that we have all of that um new equipment but um it's always been for me it's kind of you know where to draw the line there's a lot i've i've never owned a gps um i get by on a, a map and compass and i think more you rely on on equipment and and gadgets the less you um you learn about um the real woodsmanship that um i think is most important
2: yeah for sure uh could could you could you uh give us another uh story um another bighorn uh doll doll story share with us sure
0: yeah there's 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 been a lot of them. We've, I guess, a, a lot of them that you remember are, you know, the ones that that get away. Um, and I had my only guided um, hunt that I've ever been on um, was a uh, stone sheep hunt in British Columbia. And back in the years when we were outfitting, guiding in Alaska, Jay and I had a hunter that um, traded part of his Uh, cost of hunting with us for uh, half of a sheep hunt in Alberta and I was happy to to do that trade or not Alberta but BC so I ended up going into uh, a sheep hunting camp that had never had a bow hunter before and when I came in um, they had a preconceived idea of how they were going to get me a ram And so we rode out on horses the first day, about, a couple miles, to this kind of plateau mesa. And we got off the horses, and my guide says, okay, Doug, he says, there's a mineral lick here. And there are seven rams on this hill, and two of them are legal. And if you've booked an 18-day hunt... And if we sit on this mineral lick, sometime in the next 18 days, all seven of those rams are going to come into it. And we're going to set up on this blind, and you're going to kill your ram here. And I didn't say anything. I just kind of took it all in. We rode back to to the cabin that night. And um, there was another hunter in there, a rifle hunter, and he was about to go. 15 or 20 miles back in the backcountry and, and rifle hunt. And so I looked at my guide and I said, um, Scott, is there any way that I could go back in the mountains like these other guys are doing? I am not going to sit at a um, salt lick for 18 days. I don't care that much about killing a ram. That's not how I want to do it. And this guy looked at me, and he just grinned. He said, I am so happy you said that. (laughs) He said, there's nothing I would hate more than to sit there next to you for 18 days. So off we went, up in the hills, and I spent 18 days playing tag with these rams. And ended up, the last five days, there was a 40-inch white-faced ram that I just sort of became one of the herd. We, the guide started just letting me go because I wouldn't spook him out of the country. There was nothing he could do um, because you know, I had to get within my bow range. And so he would just sit down below with the spotting scope and just let me hunt. And this one white-faced ram, I spent five days on him. And I would get up in the morning and locate him and work into him and not get in a position i could make a stock or a shot and i'd put him to bed at night and i'd back off and go back and we'd talk about it and the next day go and we spent i spent five days as part of the herd i was just close within every day within 150 yards and a couple times within marginal bull range and just couldn't close the deal and the last day the last afternoon I um, got in a position where the the bunch of sheep rams were moving uphill and I found a boulder and I said, this is the place. And there was a couple inches of snow on the ground. And I said, this is the most likely place. He had several trails he could take. I said, you know, this is the most likely place that he'll go. And so I'm set up on this spot and that Rams are moving uphill. And I kind of look around, and I get second thoughts. And I'm looking above me, and I can shoot downhill, you know, 35 or 40 yards, but I'm not very confident uphill, 35 or 40 yards. And there's another trail above me about 25 yards. And I said, you know, I should get above that trail, because if he comes down below, I should still have a shot, albeit a long one. So I go uphill, change my spot, go uphill, 25 minutes later the rams go by and that ram walked 12 yards from where i had been originally set up and my error in judgment just i passed him up he it was downhill 40 45 yards watched him walk away said adios but that was one of my best hunts ever it was one of the most exciting i mean we we um it was pure because we were spike camped and, and chasing one ram, and uh, I'll never forget it. So it doesn't have to end with a <laughs> with an arrow being loosed.
1: Yeah. So, Doug, what all these expeditions you've done, you've had to be close a few times to not making it out. What was your closest call over the years?
0: Well, um, I've never really had a close call that. As far as not making it out, other than dumping a raft, there's some some things in rafting that can be, um, r- you know, real serious. And one of them is having a load of meat and um, tipping a raft and getting you can get pinned. Um, hydraulics are amazing, and so I've had some close calls with in rafting. Um, I've also had a couple of close calls uh, with bears. Um, so as far as life-threatening, um, those two are pretty pretty uh, close to the top. Um, I've been in some mountainous terrain where if you made a stupid mistake, um, it would be life-threatening. Uh, I've come out on sheep hunts uh, well after dark, um, and you know that a misstep would be, um, could be critical. Um, you know, before, I mean, you have to think about it. We have no communication. We had no radios. We had no satellite phones. I do take a satellite phone with me now um, because they're available to have in camp just in case you have an emergency. But back in the days, we never had any of those communications. And when you're using an ax and cutting wood or you're crossing a stream or you're, um, you know, facing those dangers, you really learn to think about it and go slow and not make stupid mistakes. And I guess I learned a lot of those by making those <laughs> stupid mistakes <laughs> and, uh, and getting through it. So, um, but Alaska is pretty unforgiving place and, and, uh, but again i I would say you got to go do it that's that's how you learn those
2: things so it sounds like you lot yourself a good couple weeks for these for these expeditions is that uh about right
0: well I'm kind of blessed now to have the time to do that uh, my business lets me lets me have um, more time to do it but yeah that's typical of hunting in Alaska we just don't have roads that that allow you to go out and say, I can go hunt for the evening or for even the weekend. Um, the accessible places are either um, permit only and hard to get tags, or there's a lot of people, um, you know, with the exception of maybe boat-based, um, it's very hard to do uh, short, short-term hunting in Alaska. So I wouldn't advise anybody to even think about hunting Alaska without having a week in the field. Um, that's that's the way we've always done it. Two or three long hunts um, would pretty much make a year for us.
2: And it sounds yeah. like I, it sounds like from a lot of stories I've heard from guys that sometimes weather could eat up four or five days of your hunt uh, where you're where you're hunkered down. Yeah.
0: Yep, the high country hunting especially because fog and rain can come in and you can be tent-bound for a while, and that that closes off your, your hunting time, um, no doubt. Plus, you got to figure on, on a couple days in and a couple days out if you're doing it uh, the way we do it, unguided. And even though you get to your drop-off point, you've got to get away from there because if you can be dropped off other people can too, and, uh, and I've always been a proponent of the, uh, no matter where you go, um, you need to get a few miles and a few hours off of the trail, off of the, the uh, trail head, because that's that's the way you get to places where other people aren't already hunting, and I think it's the same in the lower 48, and even now, I think there's a lot of places in public land in the lower 48 where a person can go if they're willing to put the work in to, to get away from the, the access points. And I've hunted uh, Colorado, I've hunted um, uh, Idaho, Montana, um, California even, and done it all backpack hunting and, and packing in. And there's a lot of good places that you can get to if you're you're willing to take the time and the energy to get there
2: yeah absolutely i think wild things and wild places it's it's hard to beat so why while, while we're still in the high country i'd like to transition over to the mountain goat now that we've kind of covered the the bighorns and um you know maybe touch uh on when you got into chasing these goats around and give us a little uh you know, rundown on how it's different from chasing the dolls and whatnot.
0: Well, first of all, terrain is is very very different. The goats in Alaska live in coastal terrain. They live above the sea cliffs and very close to salt water. Um, because of that, you've got a lot more moisture to deal with. You've got a lot more fog and rain. Um, typically, goat hunting, uh, you will go into either a high mountain lake. Or more often, land on a float plane in salt water, and then typically you've got a few miles of of uh, timbered country to get to to get to the alpine. Um, my first goat hunting experience was out of Homer, Alaska, which you can still goat hunt in, uh, if but it's a permit only area now. But back then it wasn't. And so we got dropped in the salt water, and we took two days. Um, I can now access that area in one long day, but we didn't really know the route. But we took two days to get through the the first the the old growth timber, and secondly the alder and underbrush that's pre-alpine. But once you break out into the alpine, you are in God's country. It's beautiful. It's, um, you know, cliff between the glaciers, um, alpine blueberry and tundra, and and a little bit of brushes, but uh, pretty much all all above timberline.
2: What kind of elevation Uh, are we talking?
0: Well, we usually start at sea level and hunt from 3,000 to 6,000 feet. So depending on the billies, are, it's just like the sheep. The big billies are by themselves. They're usually back up higher. And I have to preface that to say I'm not a trophy hunter and I'm not a horn hunter. Um, but there, it's always a draw to try to get the big old guy that's that's the most magnificent and the oldest. And so you end up doing that kind of no matter what. And um, the, the uh, goats are usually easier to locate than sheep, Um, they're very visible, but they're in less um, stockable terrain because they live on the cliffs. Their escape terrain is cliff, and they can get away from a wolf, they can get away from anything. Um, Fairly easy to get within a couple hundred yards or even a hundred yards of the goats, but dang hard without killing yourself to get out on those cliffs and, um, you know, close the range and close the deal. So it's very exciting, very, you know, the typical way I try to do it is to get above a goat and hunt down on him. And they are typically very guarded about whatever comes from below, but what comes from, um, above they're they're not they don't pay attention as much and uh, the my goat hunting country we've nicknamed impossible mountain and the reason that was is that we found out about it from a guide who had tried to take a hunter in there and he couldn't make it he had um, given up on the second day of trying to get to the alpine and he said hey this is just an impossible mountain take me home well for my brother and i that was just hey that's a challenge let's let's figure out how to do it and we ended up doing it, and we've taken probably between us off of that mountain uh, oh, at least a, oh, seven or eight goats, and uh, no, so far never seen an, another hunter up there, and that's kind of fun. You can still find those places, especially in Alaska.
2: Are you hunting them in, like, October? What, what's the time frame? Well,
0: the, no. That's, we've tried it in October, and the reason we tried it in October was looking for a um, Good, beautiful hide to make a a rug out of because they're so long-haired in October. Right. But it was just too tough, and there's nothing scarier than being up there in that steep country when when the snows come. Ice and snow, um, it's just too dangerous, and we've learned that the hard way. So we generally hunt um, late August and September. Okay. Before true deep snows and before you can still get snowed on. But you won't get that freeze-up and in, in solid snow.
2: Yeah, those goats are gorgeous when they have that full coat on, though, for sure.
0: Oh, they're magnificent animal, and they are great eating. And I'm I'm not familiar with the Rocky Mountain goats in the lower 48. They might be eating different um, feed, but our goats are tremendous to eat, and so um, we just we just love them, and we won't pass up a. A small billy any time because the food is so good.
2: Um, did it? Which one eats better, uh, the doll or the or the goat?
0: Oh, the doll will eat better. That's and there's always a little mythology involved because doll sheep are so difficult to get, but they are reputed to be, and I would stand behind it, the best wild game meat you've ever eaten. Um, they are just top of the line. They're they're. Body is just uh, marbled with fat. By the time we're hunting them in August, they are in top shape and tremendous food.
2: Yeah, it it seems like uh, Fred Bear said something about the uh, the bighorn uh, ribs and straps were beyond the best table fare around.
0: Sheep ribs rarely make it home. They will rarely ever make it out of camp because that's that's the the epitome of camp food and we we love roasting ribs on the fire and rendering them down to to camp food they're they're the very best and i i think that sheep meat's the
2: the ultimate well uh we share a uh a goat hunting story with us
0: oh sure i'll tell you an early one because um i i don't mind telling stories on myself but probably the second year we went into impossible mountain, my brother and I, and he and I hunted together a lot in the early years. And, um, we had certain jinxes and my first jinx was I could not get a mountain goat. Bobby would go and just sort of casually get a goat every time we went. Um, I, on the other hand could get black bears and I, you know, I'd be going out of camp and I'd see a bear at the water hole and run back and get my bow and just go get him. And Bobby had a thing about bears. So he was now, always just, uh, that was his nemesis, but mine was goats. So one of the not, early goats, I,
2: to I want to interrupt was, you for a second. You're not, sure. you're not superstitious. Are you?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I probably a, a bit, <laughs> uh, these,
2: these, these Borlands, I'm telling you, <laughs> these Borlands are superstitious characters. <laughs> Bob Bob <laughs> here seems to be very superstitious. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, sorry to interrupt you. I just I had to think, I had to put put that in there.
0: Fun <laughs> to throw that in. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we've got a group of four Billies, and they're a long ways away, and it is cold. And now, this is back in the old mummy bag and visqueen days, so we're <laughs> we're not totally prepared for this cold snap on top of the mountain. And we we're on on top of Impossible Mountain, between two glaciers, and the ice field. So when it froze up there, it froze the creek next to our tent, um, and it was uh, a free frowing stream. And it, we woke up, and it was just too quiet. It had just it got down to probably 18 degrees, and so we got up late and and warmed up, and we knew where these goats were from the day before, and we took off after them, and we got up on where the goats were, probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And there were four billies, and they were in a perfect place to stalk. And so they were spread out, and so Brother Bobby went to the left. We got above them, and came down on them. He was going to take the one on the far left, and I um, was going to take the one on the far right. And we were out of sight of each other, but we were probably less than... 50 yards away from each other in this kind of bouldery bedding terrain where these goats were bedded and we worked down on them and i came out probably 25 yards above um this bedded goat that i was i was on and now this was pretty much straight down and i can remember i was shooting the wing thunderbird and i can remember i didn't know how to take this shot i didn't know how to camp my bow properly to get over this ledge and, and shoot straight down. Plus the thought that I could fall to my death. Um, So my, my first arrow wasn't even close. I mean, it was like two feet away. I think it may have hit the flap on my raincoat. Um, And I had a um, four arrow quiver or I think I had a five arrow quiver Um, Or maybe six with one rubber blunt. But anyway, I got this goat up and got him moving a little bit, and I de-quivered, which is not, um, I mean, that's just sort of the polite way of saying it. I (laughs) ran out of arrows, never touched a hair on this goat. And so now I got the adrenaline going, the goats are up and looking, and I head back up around and see my brother Bobby, and this probably isn't quotable on the the blog, but I said, Bobby, give me a an arrow. (laughs) (laughs) I de-quivered, he eased up, took one shot, heart shot, this huge, I mean it would have been like (laughs) close to the new world record goat, tipped him over, and so that's how my goat hunting went for the first like three or four years until I finally settled down and
1: started getting one once in a while oh that's awesome That is super cool good stuff hey um maybe maybe you could go over um you know we're down here in the lower 48 we don't do anything near the the type of expedition hunts you have but we do a little bit of backpacking wilderness hunting in our in our little girly wildernesses down here and uh I have a couple of questions for you. Um, like, what do you do? You use a fire starter? Do you take anything in your pack with you?
0: I I generally don't, but uh, I've learned that I can take uh, Vaseline impregnated cotton. Okay. If you really are in a pinch, I've got a a, a little um, film canister. With Vaseline impregnated cotton, I probably had it for the last five years in my pack. I never used it. Um, I'm pretty comfortable making a fire anyway, but um, yeah, you, I do have a little backup. But I don't have anything like a striker or, or magnesium or any of those things.
1: Just just Vaseline and a wa- waterproof matches, huh?
0: Yeah, Vaseline in an impreg in a in Impregnated in cotton, okay, and then you just kind of fluff it up, and it makes a little, you know, it'll make a, it'll give you a candle-like uh, uh, approach. And but it's very important to you know make your fire right, make get a little tinder, and and build a base for it, and and you know shelter it from the wind, and all of those things. Waterproof matches. Um, I usually carry regular wooden matches in a waterproof container. Um, I use lighters um we always carry lighters and have you know for typical um conditions lighters will work fine but if you you know if you've tipped over in a raft and your lighters in your pocket it probably won't work yeah
1: and then this is always kind of a debate on our podcast is what do you use to keep your feathers dry sounds like you hunt some wet ground there when you're goat hunting
0: you know i use uh extra high max size feathers i just i just use oversized feather higher i don't care if it gets too wet if it's uh i have used i put a plastic ziploc on if i'm hiking and but i don't spray them i mean we've kind of tried all that stuff but i think the best thing to do is is to use a um, big shield cut feather
1: another big feather guy huh and
2: see <laughs> So you like to put a half a turkey on the end of the arrow. <laughs>
0: exactly. And think about this. If you're shooting at 18 yards, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. I try to get to my 18-yard comfort zone, and then that arrow doesn't really slow down.
2: Do you run 4 fletch or three? I do three, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then um, I know we touched a little bit on backpacks, and you said there's some light ones you know, for, for us rookies, could you recommend, because I know it sounds like Dick, you know, not necessarily using, you know, hunting brand packs, but I mean, what what do you recommend for a light pack that's not going to cost $800 out there for...
0: Well, that's part of the problem. Uh, Osprey makes a good pack. Uh, I'm a proponent of a large capacity single uh, compartment. You don't need all those pockets and all the... the zippers and all the gadgets, and it's harder and harder to get a single, um, you know, compartment pack. I'm also a proponent of a exterior frame, and one of the reasons is with an exterior frame, you don't really even need a pack sack. You can make your own. You can get um, a waterproof dry bag um, and just tie it on yourself. Yeah. and not worry about it, and then take it off with a light day pack and use that pack frame to pack meat. Um, so a, a lot of it, what you see on the market is really overkill and therefore overweight. Yeah. Um, I've got a custom-made, there's a guy in Anchorage that makes packs. That uh, he, He's got a big, what he calls his freighter, and it hauls a big load, and it is a big pack. But um, there's lighter ones available, but I like it because it's a big single compartment. I can throw everything in it.
2: And
1: um, is that the Barney's you know. guy there in Anchorage? Yeah,
2: that's Barney. Okay. Yep. All yep.
1: right. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah.
2: Um, it, it sounds like uh, from your brother to uh, um, Jay Massey, um, uh, the Robertson's, uh, Dick and Yote. Are, are these mostly the uh, partners that you, you've hunted with on these expeditions, or are there other guys that uh, you hunt with? Or,
0: Well, I've been hunting also with Don Thomas since I met him on the Kenai in the 70s. Uh, he was a doctor down in Sildatna, and I met him when I was fishing on the Kenai River, and we found out we had Montana roots, and we found out we were both longbow shooters at that time. so. He and I have tramped all over the country together and, and uh he's a between he and Dick now, I mean I hunted with Jay for lots and lots of years. He was my everyday bow hunting companion until he died of cancer. Um but I've been doing most of my hunting now with with uh with either Dawn or or Dick and Yote. Um I also am a solo hunter. I love to just go by myself and I'm comfortable doing that and and uh, even when you hunt with somebody, the way we hunt, we usually say goodbye in the morning and come back at night and compare stories and and tell lies. So, um,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: Don and I have been been um, all over the country, and he did a lot of hunting in Russia with me when I was over there, um, and uh, we we got to be good buds.
1: And why so I... why why the longbow, Dick? I know you switched way back or Doug but you switched way back why, why do you like the longbow better
0: well Jay and I made my first longbow I, I would say Jay mentored me and I made it and um, we I just like the simplicity of it I like the lightness in the hand although that first one was was uh, nothing like dick's little fairy wands that he's making <laughs> um, but uh, that I just simplicity it's it there's something about um, shooting a longbow. the, the I guess it's a, an analogy is a fly rod um, it's light in the hand it's responsive um, you don't notice it you can get through the brush with it um, and I like the the romance of it also the the arc of the bow and the arc of the arrow it just uh, it's a throwback and it's really um, all you need is it's effective weapon and as long as you limit your um, your shooting to to your abilities with it and and mine is pretty much under 30 yards uh, it's it's a great weapon it's i love them
2: what what is your draw and what uh typical length of uh, longbow are you shooting
0: well i'm i'm coming down in my draw and also my length of my bow's uh, only because, you know, Dick uh, is making shorter bows now, and I'm finding that that I don't pull 30 inches anymore like I used to. When I was pulling 30 inches, then the shorter length bows um, you could get quite a bit of finger pinch, and you know they didn't they they'd stack on you. But the modern bows that that I'm shooting now, I don't really notice that, so I can get down in that. 60 inch um and and be comfortable with it'll
2: be fine happy well um I, i think for the listeners you guys have probably heard a a lot of little tidbits of like you know he'd mentioned the the rafting expeditions and he had mentioned a little bit about russia and we had actually asked uh We'd actually ask Doug not to get into that stuff because we, uh, we're going to bring more Doug Borland to you guys. There's uh, a, this guy has a lot to offer and we, uh, deliberately kept this podcast about the high country and we plan on bringing you guys more Doug, if that's all right with Doug. And we're going to get into some of this, uh, uh, rafting expeditions and, uh, possibly some Russia and we've got some other, uh, uh he, he has a lot to offer, and we really look forward to having more podcasts with Doug. Be
0: happy to do it, you guys. Anything that I can do to, to promote traditional archery and to support what um, what we love, I'd be happy to do it any time.
2: That's, that's great. Um, uh, Robert, do you have uh, any last questions you'd like to to ask doug why well, before we wrap this up no
1: i think we can we'll cover the rest on the next one um we could we could talk for hours and hours and hours that's why we got to cut them into a couple parts here so thanks for having us or thanks for coming on with us doug we really appreciate your time we know you're a busy guy so we appreciate it man yeah oh,
0: you and, uh, bet thanks guys I, I look forward to visiting again
1: It's our first fellow Borland on the show, so that's good. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. We'll we'll, we'll let you get back to those uh, white sand beaches and that beautiful weather that you got there in Hawaii. Uh, That
0: sounds good. I may do that today.
2: (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for joining us on this awesome adventure with Doug Borland. Uh, As I promised, there'll be more to come. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Check us out on our website at TradQuest.com. We're on social media, Facebook, Instagram. And always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight.